We come now to our message, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 2, where we read just a moment ago. And if you're turning there, you'll know that over the past several months, we've been in Hebrews chapter 2. It's part of our journey that's been going on for quite some time through uh, this letter to the Hebrews. Many important things found in this letter. We could start with that exordium in chapter 1, those first four verses that speak of the glory and majesty of Christ and all that's said there of Him. And the author has in mind to set up this contrast between this reigning and glorious Christ who is the heir of all things, the one through whom all the worlds, the aeons were created, all these things that are said about Him, and angels whom are servants. Christ, the reigning King, angels, servants. Christ, the one whom, through whom all things were made, angels created. So this contrast we've been dealing with for quite some time. And it leads us to chapter 2 and this exhortation or word of warning given there about being careful not to drift away. If you've heard the truth, if you've received the truth, stay anchored in that truth because it is easy to drift away. And as we said, the picture there is very significant because drifting is something that can happen so slow and imperceptible you don't even realize it's happening. So the author says, stay anchored. Stay perceptive. Stay in the Word of God. Stay tied to these truths so you don't drift away. And he says because building on that picture in the first chapter of angels and Christ contrasting against each other, he says, for if the former covenant, which was, if you will, mediated by angels, and we went through that, mediated by Moses on the human side, angels on the heavenly side, if it carried sure punishment for those who ignored it or neglected it, he says, how much more then will this revelation, mediated in the Son of God Himself, carry with it disaster for those who neglect it? He says, how will we escape? How will we even escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And then he goes through that it was preached to you, preached to Christ, and then to his apostles, and then from them to us, and so on and so forth. And God bore witness to it with signs and miracles. But as he comes to the body of chapter 2 that we've been looking at for quite some time, the author wants to establish some more, if you will, contrast between Christ and the angels. He goes back to a theme from chapter 1, doesn't he? He said in chapter 1, to no angel, right? To which angel did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Was Psalm 110 written about an angel? No, it was written about the Messiah, the Son of God. David's heir. David's greater heir. And so again, he says it was, written, was not written to an angel, but to the one who will rule and reign, and that is Christ Jesus. It's also a reference to Psalm 2, the one who inherits the nations. And now the author says, I'll give you further evidence that it is not unto angels that the age to come or the world to come is ruled by, but it is ruled by Christ. And he goes to Psalm 8, and we spoke about how unique Psalm 8 is. It's a a famous psalm, an important psalm. David says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him, meaning man, a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet." And of course, David's looking back to creation. In all that was created, why did you consider man? 
Why was man like the greatest of your creation in the sense of you gave him honor and glory and put the created world, Eden, under his stewardship? Adam having dominion over that part of creation, naming the animals, and we've gone through all of that. David can't quite understand it, neither can we, except it pleased God to do it that way. But Psalm 8, as this author tells us, is not only looking back to what was lost in Adam, but what is regained in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not left to wonder when it says, you made him lower than the angels if he's applying that to Christ, because he tells us he's applying it to Christ. Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So this author says we're, we're talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the one who fulfills Psalm 8. Yes, David was looking back, but David was also looking forward. He was looking forward to the one who had come. And as Luther said, restore in Christ what was lost in Adam. Restore in Christ what was lost in Adam. Now, why did he do it this way? We've got some themes that we're going to pick up on today. In fact, I'm going to argue if you've been here for this series, there's nothing new today. It's the author summing up everything we've been talking about. So we should be on good ground, but just think about these things. He says, why did it happen this way? Because it was fitting for God to do it in just this way. John Owen, the great uh, theologian, said it's the only way it could happen. I think as we look through this text, we see that. Christ had to take on flesh. He had to become a man and be tempted and tried as we all are, yet without sin, go to Calvary's cross, give His life as an atonement for His people, die, rise again, be exalted to the right hand of the Father. That is the fitting way for Him to redeem His people. The only way I think you'll see today as we walk through it again. Now, we had some of these themes we've been talking about, about how He identifies with His people. He's not ashamed to call us His brethren. He must become like us. Therefore, He's not ashamed to be called one of us, in terms of us being his brethren. And then we saw those Old Testament references, Psalm 22 and Isaiah, uh, that, that is the basis of that. But last Sunday we began to look at verses 14 and 15. In fact, we really did look at those two verses. Because it says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise shared in the same. So if we have flesh and blood... He took on flesh and blood. He became a man. Why? That through death, through death, He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. When we say Christ came into the world to die, that's what this text is saying. He came into the world to go to Calvary's cross. Now it's important all that happened before that. The incarnation, Him living a sinless life under the law, born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that they might have the adoption of sons, as Paul says. All that is essential in understanding what Christ was doing. In fact, we're going to come very shortly to the Christmas season. I think Christmas is three months from yesterday, right? That's hard to believe. But we often think, well, what is this Christmas story about? What's this incarnation about? It's right here what it's about. Right in this chapter what it's about. The children that God is redeeming, are, have partaken of flesh and blood. They are flesh and blood. They are human. And therefore, He Himself likewise shared in our humanity that He might taste death, that He might, through death, destroy death. And in fact, 
disarm the enemy of his greatest weapon, which is the fear of death, to which all mankind are subject to bondage all of their life. I didn't get into this, but it's amazing when you see interviews, even with celebrities and famous people, how much they're terrified of death. I remember seeing Martin Bashir several years ago, I guess it's many years ago now, Michael Jackson's been dead a long time, but he was asking about a sarcophagus in a store they were at. And Michael Jackson went in there and spent like a half a million dollars that one day on things. And he's like, why don't you buy this? And he said, no, I'm terrified of death. I want nothing that reminds me of death. But what this text tells us is the sting of death has been taken from the enemy. We no longer have to see death, as we said last Sunday, as a gateway to judgment, but now the gateway to eternal life itself with our Maker, with our glorious Lord. And so again, that's where he's been. And he comes today to this text, and I want us to read it one more time. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at two very quick points. First of all, the seed. talks about the seed of Abraham. And second of all, the priest. Christ came to be our priest. And that's what this chapter is largely about. And by the way, much of the argument moving forward through Hebrews is about this very point. So coming first to this idea of the seed, let's look where the text begins. Always important. It begins, again, with four. And how many times have we started sermons by mentioning this? That word in Greek is gar. It's for this reason, because. It ties back to what's been said. It explains it. So it's said just now that Christ has taken on flesh and died to defeat the enemy and to free us from the bondage to death. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abram. Now, it's going to be important to recognize that this verse ties into what was said, and it's going to be very important because there's some uh, difference of opinion on how to interpret this. And it's largely because of this word here, epilembanamai, that is this word that we see here as giving aid in the New King James. Others say help or render aid, render help to. There's different ways this is translated. Uh, It's a difficult word. And in fact, in the early church days, so the early church fathers almost all interpreted this as Christ taking on our humanity. Because the word literally means to seize or take hold of. To seize or take hold of. So the early church fathers said, well, what this means is he took hold of our humanity. He took it upon himself. He became a man. Now, when the Reformation days came along, something amazing happened. They were no longer stuck reading Jerome's Latin Bible, right? They were no longer stuck with the Latin. They could go back and read the Greek manuscripts as uh, people like Erasmus published uh, Greek New Testaments. And this was, by the way, incredibly important. As we talk about coming up to Reformation Day, uh, the church was really freed from bad doctrine by this very thing. We've talked many times about how as Luther was reading the Greek uh, New Testament, he noticed that it was no longer Jerome's Justificare in Romans said, but dikaiosune, very different meanings between the Latin justificare, to be righteous, and dikaiosune, to be declared as if righteous. 
Very different meanings here. Very different meanings. Uh, ground shattering. We'll be looking at this as we come to, uh, to Reformation Day again. We always bring this up. But in the same way, as they rediscovered these Greek texts, they began to read them. They recognized, wait a minute. The Greek doesn't quite say what the Latin says. Jerome did a great job trying to translate the Bible, but he didn't do it perfectly or we'd still be using the Latin Vulgate today. And thank goodness we're not. But again, here we come to this. This word, epilombonomai, it actually means to seize or take hold of, and it often has the meaning of seizing someone in order to deliver them or save them or help them or render aid to them. And so Erasmus was the first to say, well, this isn't him taking on our humanity, but this is saying he did not come to save angels. He came to save men. Luther, Calvin, all the reformers, that's how they interpreted it. And it's how almost every translation, every translation team does it today. If you look at your Bible, the New King James, you just heard me read it. It's give aid. And I believe both the ESV and NASB, it's help or give help. So again, you see this theme in, in understanding. And now, ultimately, it's saying the same thing. I don't want to spend too much time on this because whether it's talking about taking on flesh in order to come and save us, or it's talking about saving us, it's saying ultimately the same thing, but there is a slight reason that we need to get this right. First of all, it's the Word of God. We want to interpret it rightly. But second of all, if you look at the flow of the text, it makes much more sense to say it in the way that has been recognized over the last 500 years. Because what is verse 14 and 15 about? If the children are flesh and blood, Christ must also take on humanity. Why? Well, verse 16 because he does not take on angelic form, but takes on flesh and blood like a man. The exact same thing. And then go to 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. I mean, it's kind of repeating the same thought three times in a row. Whereas if you go back and look at it through the, the I, I believe, the proper interpretation, it says that if we are flesh and blood, human beings, he likewise had to share in our humanity. Why? Because he wasn't coming to save angels. He was coming to save men. And if he was coming to save men, he had to become like us in all ways, and as a later chapter adds, and yet without sin. So again, as we look at it that way, we recognize that he came to save the seed of Abraham, which means he himself became a seed of Abraham. He became a man. He took on flesh. He came on this mission. Now, why is all this important? Well, I ask you to remember what we've already looked at. Go back to verse 11. The author's already explained to you a biblical principle of great importance to understand all of this. Look at what it says about priests and people. 11, for both he who sanctifies, this is the priest, he who sanctifies or consecrates, and the ones being consecrated are all of one. A priest must be of the people that he's consecrating. He must identify with them. Is that seen in the Old Testament? Of course. Of course. It was an Israelite who was the high priest. <laughs> he was ministering on behalf of Israelites. That's just an obvious fact. And the author says, but if that's true, you had to have a human being come into this world and be our high priest. If there is to be a perfect high priest, he must be a man. 
he must be a man. Now, we've gone further than that. We've said that if he's going to die, he must become a man. Isn't that right? God can't die. So Christ had to take on humanity to be able to go to the cross and die as the atoning sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God. That's part of the mission. But the author here says, go beyond that. Because his humanity is tied to what he continues to do. Yes, the mission on the cross finished. He did it as a man, as the God-man. But he has a continuing ministry as our high priest, interceding on our behalf, and it requires his humanity even today. Even today. Spurgeon said it's important to recognize what's being said here when he says not only that he came as a man to die and give aid to men, but notice he did not come and die for angels. He came to save fallen men, not fallen angels. Now we could have a whole sermon on just that, can't we? That they are reserved for judgment. They are in chains awaiting judgment. All these pictures given to us in the scriptures. He did not come to redeem fallen angels. He came to redeem fallen men. And therefore he renders aid or gives aid, takes hold of the seed of Abraham. Well, who are the seed of Abraham? Well, Paul answers that elsewhere, doesn't he? The seed of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. He came to die for the people who are the faithful, the people of God. He came to die for them. He came to render aid to the seed of Abraham, he himself being the singular seed of Abraham. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians? That when it speaks of a seed, it speaks of one singular, that is Christ. He came as the seed of the promise given to Abraham to deliver all those who are the seed of Abraham by faith. Now, if we see all of that, we recognize something very important. F.F. Bruce said this, He became man then in order to save men and women. When the Son of God, the Creator and Lord of angels, humbled Himself, He passed by the angelic estate and stooped lower still, taking to Himself human nature for the redemption of the human family. Not of angels, but of human beings He takes hold. The verb is the same as in 8-9. So if you were to turn to 8-9, you would see that, where God recalls how He took hold of His people Israel by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. And in both places, taking hold carries with it the idea of deliverance. So just as God took hold of His people when they were captive in slavery and He drug them out into freedom and into a land of promise. So this author wants us to recognize a parallel here We were in bondage too. That's what he just said. We were in bondage to sin and death. And he came and he took us by the hand and led us out into freedom. And so, my friends, this is the image that he's trying to give us. It's an important image. He is our high priest because he came in human flesh, becoming a man, not giving up his divinity, fully God and fully man. He became a seed of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, Abraham, that he could deliver the seed of Abraham. Now, we shouldn't take that, by the way, to exclude Gentiles. That's what we're trying to get at. Paul makes it clear this is a phrase that includes Gentiles when it says this, and we just went through that, but just keep that in mind. That brings us to our second point. The next phrase uh, basically goes on to say that Jesus became a high priest. Look at it right there. Therefore, in all things, 
He had to be made like his brethren. I don't need to go back through this. We've gone through it over and over again. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to the things pertaining to God. So we've walked through this over and over again. He came in every way like us, yet without sin, that he might be like his brethren, that he might redeem his brethren, not only as the sacrifice, but as the high priest offering the sacrifice. Now, here's the important point. He didn't just become a high priest, but he was a merciful and faithful high priest. A merciful and faithful high priest. Now, I'd like for you to think about this just for a moment because it's very important. When we say that he was a faithful priest, it's important to recognize that faithfulness was one of the attributes that should be there for a priest. Right? Faithfulness to the things pertaining to God, faithfulness in his duty, faithfulness in his intercession on behalf of the people, faithfulness in continuing his duties appropriately. All these things are what you'd almost call a job description for what it means to be a priest, and particularly a high priest. We could add merciful to that, can't we? I mean, the entire job of the priest, particularly the high priest, is to be involved in mercy. Right? The mercy of God upon his people. The high priest is the one who is merciful toward the people and that he intercedes on their behalf. He's the one who offers the sacrifice. God then supplying mercy to his people. All this around this job. And yet as we read the history of Israel, we find many high priests who didn't fit this bill. In fact, we could add a third category that this text has given us, couldn't we? That he must identify with the people. Yet if you read the history of Israel, you find many high priests that did not want to identify with the people. They wanted to set themselves up above the people. Better than the people. They lived like kings. Christ came condescending himself past stooping down below angels, as F.F. Bruce just said, to be a man and to identify with us in every way. We've often said in the Christmas season that it's amazing Christ was born in a manger in the shadow of the ancient world's greatest palace, the Herodian. The Herodian. Bethlehem sat in the shadow of the Herodian. Notice Christ wasn't born in the palace. He was born in the manger. He came to identify with us. To identify with us. But many of the high priests that we read about in the Old Testament were anything other than faithful in their duties. Anything other than merciful uh, before God and merciful before the people. And yet when we read of Christ, we read one who was faithful in every way. Faithful to God. He came to do His Father's will. To live according to the plan His Father laid out from before time began. He came and He did it perfectly. He was born under the law. He perfectly kept the law, perfectly faithful in all ways before God, in the things pertaining to God, perfectly faithful in representing His brethren as the true Israelite, as the one who would keep the law, who would do what Adam did not do. He perfectly represented us, faithful to us. And as Paul says elsewhere, He was faithful even to a great cost. Paul says elsewhere, he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. What's Paul saying there? He didn't just come and remain faithful to the mission to go and die. He went and died in the most despicable way possible. The cross, not only 
incredibly painful. We've spoken about that, how the, uh, the Assyrians and so forth really planned this. The Persians perfected it. The Romans took it and ran with it as the most suffering-inducing way of killing somebody. You could put them up on a cross and make it to where they would languish for days and days and days. And on top of that, we have the biblical truth that there's a curse upon the cross, right? Upon the tree, those who die upon the tree. And so we read here that Christ came and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, with its shame and with its curse and with all that it bears, all that it brings with it. He was faithful. And what about us, our priest? Perfectly faithful. Perfectly faithful. Interceding constantly at the right hand of the Father on behalf of His people. Constantly. The perfect priest. That's part of the argument of this letter, isn't it? He's going to say, you know, in the, in the Old Testament picture, priests came and went. Even the best ones died. They couldn't continue perfectly in their service. But Christ serves perfectly forevermore. The perfect high priest, ever interceding, ever faithful before God and before man. But that also means he's merciful. Going to the cross is not only a picture of faithfulness, it's a picture of mercy. That Christ would stoop below the level of angels, would stoop to become a man, condescend himself to become a man, take on humanity. That he would go to Calvary's cross to redeem fallen sinners like me, like you. How can you describe that other than perfect mercy? Perfect grace. Perfect love. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. And the text says why he did it. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. That is, to make atonement or to to wipe out or pay for, however you want to interpret that. To make propitiation for us. That's why he did it. For our many sins, our grievous sins, our great sins that separate us from a holy and righteous God. The sins that would bring judgment upon us if it were not for our merciful and faithful high priest who came as the perfect Lamb of God and was offered up for our redemption. And so all of this is in this picture of why Christ came. Again, I said in the Christmas story, people say, well, why is this incarnation important? Well, right here it's very succinctly given to you, isn't it? He had to come into this world as a man if he were going to be our sacrifice and our perfect high priest. Without this, there is no salvation. Without this, there is no hope. It's one of the reasons we hammer on that idea over and over when these preachers today come along and say, ah, the incarnation is not an essential doctrine. The virgin birth and the accompanying incarnation, not essential. Uh, We know Andy Stanley says this almost every year. My friends, they need to read this chapter. The author of Hebrews says, If this did not happen, you are still in your sins. There is no perfect sacrifice or perfect high priest. There is no hope for you outside of Christ coming in as a man, as the uh, fully man, fully God, the God-man, and giving his life for us and serving as our perfect high priest. There is no hope. Well, Look how this author applies all of this. Verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. Now, that's a tough word. Uh, 
it probably is better to say tested, being tested, he is able to aid those who are tested. When we're going through temptations, trials, tests, Christ's already walked that road. He's already been through all of that. He was tempted. He was tried. He was tested. And yet he completed the task. He was utterly faithful and merciful in his task. And so this author says, you can be too. Because he can give aid to you as you are going through your trials and temptations, tribulations and tests. Now what does he mean? Well, first of all, as just the simple text gives us here, Christ Jesus had to remain faithful through many difficulties. You look at the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, if it is possible, take this cup away from me, yet not my will but your will be done. You know, be very easy for any human, me, you, to say no way, walking away. Christ perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful. Christ saw through those trials and tests and getting through them, completed the mission. And therefore, as our high priest, having been tempted and tried in all ways as we have and yet without sin, is able to give us aid in our trials and temptations and tests. Well, that brings me to our close and the application of this. Why is this important? Well, I want to first ask you to think about who this author is writing to. Some Jewish Christians that are beginning to think, you know, things are getting really hard on Christians. Really difficult right now. And it would be a whole lot easier to just kind of drop the name of Jesus, you know, take all these crosses down, get rid of this New Testament, whatever we had of it, and go back to the synagogue. It would be a whole lot easier. There's no persecution on our, our Jewish friends, but there is on us. I could go back to the synagogue and I'll be safe. I can return to what was once familiar to me and I'll be safe. Of course, we know the author's argument is, no, you will not be safe. You're near the harbor of faith. You'll sail right past. Do not neglect this great salvation. Do not neglect it. But he's saying to these people, don't forget Jesus, our high priest, himself was tested. He was tried. He met with many obstacles, many trials and tribulations. He met with many tests. Many. Beaten, despised, rejected by the very people he came to as their Messiah. Brutalized and yet utterly faithful through it all. The author of Hebrews is saying two things I think here. First of all, you have a model in Jesus of what it means to be faithful through difficulties. But even more important than that, you have a helper through those difficulties. Because Jesus, your high priest, himself has suffered. He was tested. He walked through it and remained faithful. And he can help you do the same. He can help you do the same. My friends, these words are important to us because we're not without trials and temptations and tribulations, are we? Some of them may be very much like what this author is thinking of and dealing with. We have brothers and sisters around the world who endure persecution and trial for their faith. We deal with it in a much lighter way of people rolling their eyes or I don't want to hear any more about this Jesus, whatever it may be that we deal with. Maybe an employer that doesn't like that we're a Christian, whatever it may be. But those are mild compared to what our brothers and sisters deal with. 
where they may shed blood for their faith. But all of us deal with difficulties in life. All of us deal with trials and tribulations and sufferings that are just part of what it means to be a human being. Illness, sickness, death. All of us deal with these things. And what we're called to remember is we don't face them alone. We have a high priest. And he himself has suffered. He was tested. He walked the road that we walk. And he walked it in utter and perfect faithfulness and mercy. And now he sits at the right hand, continuing this work as our high priest, and he is giving aid to us. What is the purpose of a minister? To give aid, to give help, to teach, to to reconcile, to do all these things. But one of them is to encourage. And what this is saying is if Christ is our minister, he is perfectly able to aid us and encourage us in our trials. Why? Because he's faced them already. And he made it through. And he gives us help. And one of the ways that he does that is through the comforter that he gave us, right? That he sent to us. We are comforted in that way as part of his ministry. But we have a faithful and merciful high priest. And so what this text says is, hold on in those valleys. Hold on in those trials. Don't give up and certainly don't turn your back on Jesus. Because at the end of the day, he is our high priest or we stand with no high priest and no reconciliation before a holy and righteous God. He's saying to this people, don't turn your back on Jesus for without him there is no hope. I think he would tell us the same thing. But he would tell us as believers, one of the glorious benefits we have in Christ is that he's ministering to us constantly in our difficult times. And we should thank him for that.